And two days later, I walked into my boss's office and I resigned from my 20-year career. And I absolutely would not have done it that soon were it not for that letter. That's what I needed at that moment was the courage from that letter. And so, uh, and it's, it absolutely is one of the best decisions I've ever made. Welcome to the Get Clear with Crystal Ware podcast, the place where we get clear on our goals, own our worth, and learn to be the CEOs of our own lives. I'm your host, Crystal Ware, lawyer and former Fortune 500 corporate leader who found the confidence to say goodbye to a lucrative career and start my own business. Now I'm opening up the playbook and sharing everything I've learned to get you there faster. It may not be easy, but it will always be worth it because you are made for more. So put on your big girl pants, jump on board, and let's reach for the stars. Are you ready to get clear? Today on the show, we have such an exciting guest uh, that I connected with on LinkedIn and uh, found an article that he'd written several years ago and thought, gosh, we've got to get this story out. It is just going to be amazing. So today we have Paul Smith on the show. He is a leading expert on organizational storyteller. He worked for a giant corporation for many, many, many years and decided to take a huge leap of faith in starting his own business, essentially, and writing books. Uh, He has gone on to author several books, works around the country doing speaking engagements, has been all over the world, has interviewed over 300 CEOs to get their stories and figure out what makes them effective at their jobs. And today, we brought him on to talk about how he got the courage, how he forged a path to go into this new world after working at a big company, uh, which I know is something that so many people are interested to know about. So thank you and welcome to the show today, Paul. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. Well, I think the best starting place for us today would be to talk about uh, what your work was like when you were at Procter & Gamble and you know, build us out and what that felt like and what led, what was the impetus that led to you uh, deciding to take a departure and do something completely different. Yeah, well, it it certainly wasn't, uh, you know, that I hated my job or something like that. I mean, Procter & Gamble is a great company. I, I enjoyed all of my time there. Um, and my career there was a fairly typical corporate career path. You know, I entered, you know, right out of uh, business school and um, like I said, 20 years there, first half of that was in finance type roles. The second half in consumer research type roles at various levels of management and, um, various locations around the country. Um, but I, I've got this theory that it certainly applies to me. Maybe it applies to, to you and some of your listeners, but I developed this, this theory that I think most people love about 10% of their job. You know, it's why they chose that career in the first place. It's, you know, the thing that gets them up out of bed in the morning, you know, and there's probably 10% that they just hate, you know, I don't know, filling out the expense reports or office politics or something. But that 80% in the middle, the big chunk of the job in the middle is, it's, it's good. You know, they, they like it. I mean, you know, they wouldn't do it if you didn't pay them to do it. But, you know, it's, it's good work. Um, and I thought after a while, you know, wouldn't it be awesome if I could do that 10% at the top, just that my whole job would be the 10% that I love. Um and so I had to figure out, well, what is that for me? What is that 10% for me? 
And I thought about it for a while and I figured out that it was the few days a year that I got to either give a speech at the annual company meeting or teach a new hire training class or teach a class for, you know, newly promoted general managers or something. So essentially what I loved the most about my job was being a, a teacher and trainer. In other words, it wasn't my main job. It was just this thing that I got to do every once in a while. And that became the, my 10% that I really loved. And so I, I looked around, I was like, well, wh how can I do this full-time? Is there a full-time job at this company of 120,000 people that does this full-time? And there wasn't a single role like that. that just, it just didn't exist in the company. And so I, I wanted to go figure out how can I do that? And I, I realized, well, the only people I know that get to do this kind of job full-time are people who've written some best-selling book and then they just travel around the world and talk about whatever they wrote about in their book. So I realized, well, that's what I got to do. <laughs> if I, if I want to do this type of work, I, I, I've got to write a book and, and leave and leave the company. So again, it wasn't that I was leaving because I was unhappy or didn't like it. It was, it was great, um, but it, uh, it wasn't that 10% all the time. And that was my motivation was to go find, was to go write a book and figure out if I could make a career out of speaking and training. So for people listening who may not really have honed in yet on what they really thrive on, what, how did you figure out that that 10%, I mean, what, can you tell us a little bit about what was that process? What was the time frame it took you to kind of assess that? And what was your thinking behind that? Yeah, well, that was probably the slowest part of the process, uh, you know, because it, it obviously took me about, 20 years to figure that out. And well, you know, maybe more like, um, you know, 12 or 13 or something. Cause then it took me a, a couple of years to execute this plan, which I can, you know, we can talk about next, but, um, yeah, I had to be in the business world for a, a long time, you know, more than a decade before it occurred to me. And, and that, and that's probably not going to be unusual for people, right? You, you probably don't know what you're going to love doing for a long time, you know, until you've been out in the real world doing stuff and, and figure it out. Or, or I don't know, maybe that's just me. <laughs> maybe other people figure it out sooner. But um, as I look around, that doesn't seem to be unusual that people figure out what they really enjoy doing after a decade or more of doing something else or doing only that thing part time. No, I absolutely agree with you. I, I think about that a lot on my own journey and what in reflecting, I mean, I've had a job since I was 14. So I have had a lot of time to think about. And when I reflect back on what I really enjoyed doing, it's not stuff that people talk about in school or, you know, career guidance or in mentorship really at a big company. So, uh, I, I do think that that's very, very common. Um, issue that people have that when you 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 go to college you think I've got to get a company a big company job I've got to get a good paying job you're not really focused on well, what environment do I want to be in what things do I want to do what kind of people do I want to be around do I want to be problem solving so I think those are all yeah people come to this kind of early mid mid career mm -hmm. level and and are just trying to figure out what do I really want out of life um so what do you think drove you? What do you think inside of you was pushing you to figure this out? Did you want, were you seeking like ultimate happiness? Did you want to 10X your happiness? Were you just looking for growth and development? Is that like a natural state for you? Or, or what do you think um, pushed you towards that? Because, you know, a lot of people are just happy to just kind of, you know, make the donuts every day, right? Yeah. Um, so obviously you were thinking a little differently about your life. What do you think um, 
push you into thinking about it in those ways. Let me tell you the criteria that I came up with for what what I would leave for. And I, that maybe that will answer your, your question. Um, and it kind of answers your last question too. Is it, um, so I, I, I finally at one point sat down to with myself, you know, to figure out what criteria would some opportunity have to meet in order for me to leave what I thought was a great job at a great company with great benefits and, you know, a good future and all that kind of stuff. And I came up with five criteria. So the first one was I would only leave to do work that I was truly passionate about. Like the work that I, it was that 10%, right, that we talked about. Only if it was something I really loved and would almost do for free if, you know, if you, somebody could find me that job. Um, so it, that was the first criteria. The other, the second one though was uh, work that I could excel at. You know, I had to, you know, I had to admit that I, I think at the job I was doing, I was probably average, you know, you know, I'd, I'd gotten promoted to the level that, you know, you, you all follow that kind of path in life. Everybody gets promoted up to the level that they're not going to get promoted anymore. Right. So at some point, you know, at some point early in your career, you're, you're above average and you're outstanding. You're better than a lot of other people. And that's why you're the one that they promote. Well, at some point you get to the level, okay, this is my level. This is where I'm going to, you know, stay. And, um, and that felt average. And I didn't want, I, I wanted something else that I could excel at, that I could be excellent at. So that was the second criteria. The third one was I wanted work that I thought would really make a difference in people's lives. And I know that sounds cliche, but I think that's only because most of us are not doing work that really makes a positive benefit in other people's lives. We're, we're making the donuts, as, as you said. Um, so it, it would need to be that kind of a thing that I really thought, oh, th this is going to be a real... Uh, make real differences in people's lives. The fourth criteria was that should it, just that it had to support my family. I mean, I wasn't trying to leave, um, you know, to, uh, to to work at some charity or you know, dedicate my life to some charitable cause. You know, I still had a wife and two kids to support and college funds to pay, you know, for and all that kind of stuff. So I needed, um, you know, something that actually paid money. Um, and the fifth criteria was something that uh, an opportunity that my wife would support. You know, you, you, if you've got a life partner, you, you don't make big decisions without checking with them first. And, you know, I didn't want to go do something that was going to be so crazy. It was going to make her uncomfortable and worry about, you know, our future and our kids' future and all that. So she had to be on board with whatever I decided. So those are the five criteria. Now notice what was not on that list. More money, I needed to make enough money, right? That was criteria number four, but it didn't have to be, I wasn't leaving to find more money. I was making plenty of money. You know, bigger office, wasn't looking for a bigger office, better title, wasn't looking for a better title. I mean, so there were a lot of things that I was not looking for that I had to get clear that that's not important to me at this point in my life and career. And for a lot of people at some point in their life and career, those three things are very important. More money, better title, bigger office. You know, and I'm sure there there was, I know there was, many points in my career that those were very important to me. But at the point that I'd gotten to, those were no longer important than those other five were. So, so those were the five criteria. And I'll, I'll, I can tell you how I went about answering that, but let me pause and see if you have any questions about that so far. Well, you know, I, I wanted to highlight for everybody one thing that you did say that, you know, you work that you could excel at. Because I think that is really interesting to think about um, as you move up the corporate ladder. Uh, and that is something that I kind of reflected on in my own decision-making that, you know, where was I going to be the ultimate leader? Was I, was I going to be the CEO, CFO, general counsel of a 
100,000 employee company? Probably not. And so I haven't thought about it in the way that you, you know, the words that you put it in. And I, I think that's just really interesting for people to start thinking about. If you're feeling unhappy or unstuck, that might give some credence, some words, some thoughts for people um, to consider uh, when they may not understand what they're feeling. And for hard charging type A people that really are growth oriented, um, depending on where you are at your career, that may be something that moves the needle. Um, that may be something that you have to consider uh, to get yourself unstuck. If if what it is, is that as you, you know, it's a pyramid, right? There's only so many places to go as you climb the corporate uh, ladder. And if you're kind of stalling out and that's making you unhappy, where can you excel and what can you be doing? That's a really great question to ask yourself. So I, I think that's amazing. That's really gold for everybody. The other thing I wanted to ask about is uh, when you were thinking about this, it clearly didn't have an impact for you, but in your work and talking to people since then, do you find that a lot of people have a, a trouble when they've had a great title, when they've had managerial experience or run big teams, that that title and position, that identity that they get wrapped up in keeps them from moving forward in something they really might want to do because they can't let go of that title and identity? Uh, well, so when I'm, when I'm interviewing these executives, I, I, those are not the kind of questions I'm asking. Quite honestly, I'm asking about the leadership stories that they're telling or, you know, whatever. Um, I, I do know people to whom those things are very important and it's typically because they're still early in their career or, um, you know, they, they still, there are things that they want to accomplish. And, you know, I, and I know people who have left jobs for other jobs that had better titles only because, you know, and nothing else better, but only because that better title would get them another job that would be even better. And, and those have worked for people. Those strategies have worked for people. And so I, I wouldn't want to poo poo that idea or that strategy. Um, you know, they, those are just different goals than I had at the, at the time. Yeah, absolutely. So when it came to your, you're talking through, uh, getting your wife's support and, and supporting your family, which is also very important. And I like to kind of delve into that a little bit because that can be a practical, um, you know, barrier for some people, or, or at least a perceived barrier that holds people back from making decisions that ultimately could lead to their, you know, fulfillment, their happiness and, and doing something that they love and that they're passionate about. Did your wife work? Were you the sole provider? Can you tell us more about that and, and how um, you were able to move forward and not let that hold you back? Yeah. So I, I was the, the sole uh, breadwinner in the family, I guess, at the time. My wife was full-time mom. We had two kids, you know. Um, so yeah, it was a big, it was a big risk. You know, I'd be going from a, you know, guaranteed monthly corporate salary to a guaranteed monthly zero, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, there's, there's just no, there's no salary, you know, a regular paycheck that comes with being an author and a speaker. You, you make as much money as books you sell and speaking engagements you get hired for. Right. Um, so that was a risk. So, so, so remember that was, that was criteria number five. So, uh, I answered it differently than I answered the other four. So in, in answering that question five, I'm getting my, my wife on board with it. There were two things that, um, that I did. 
one is uh, we went together to a financial advisor, you know, and we said, uh, okay, you know, here's, here's all of our bank accounts, right? Here's all our information. Here's all the money we have and the investments we have. And um, here's how much money we spend every year, you know, on food and tuition and going on vacations. Um, tell us how much money Paul has to make every year in speaking and training engagements and book royalties and stuff like that to maintain this standard of living that we have now. Um, because it was probably not going to be as much as I was earning. It was probably going to be less than that. Uh, and, and I wanted to know and wanted her to know, is that going to be good enough? Are we going to be able to live this quality of life on some new lower level of income? So he did all his math and he called us back in a week and we went back into his office and he wrote a number down on a piece of paper and put it in front of us. He said, that's how much money you need to make in this new career that you aspire to, to maintain the standard of living that you have now, given all of your investments and stock options and stuff like that. Um, and it was about a third of the number that I was making currently. So that just seemed very doable. I mean, that just, it, you know, it was, oh, you, you can get by on a lot less money and still maintain the standard of living. So that made her very comfortable. The second thing I did was I asked her this question. I said, what's the worst that could happen? What is the worst case scenario with this new career I want to pursue? And she thought about that and she said, well, I guess nobody would ever buy any of your books and nobody would ever hire you for a speaking engagement, right? That's the worst case scenario. And I said, right, zero income is the worst case scenario. And, and what would I do if I tried this and that's mm -hmm. what happened? If I, you know, I tried it for a year or two and I literally sold no books and no speaking engagements. And she said, well, you'd, you'd probably get your resume out and go get a real job again. And I said, exactly. That is the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is I try this for a couple of years. It doesn't work. I don't make any money, but we don't lose any money. And uh, I go get a real job again. That's the worst case. As opposed to, hey, honey, I want to take our life savings and invest it in the series of bed and breakfast hotels or this new VC you know, startup out in California. And it, if it works, we're going to be billionaires. And the worst case scenario is we're bankrupt. We have no money. Our savings are gone. We're, we're, we're destitute. Like that's the, you know, so it wasn't one of those. It was, oh, worst case scenario is not that risky. So those two things got her comfortable with it. And that's how criteria number five <laughs> got satisfied. Yeah. I mean, that, and, and you invested in yourself, you know, I mean, you, the risk you were taking wasn't, as you said, on a VC or a, an, a real estate asset or some other thing, which I'm not against, by the way. I, I actually do some of those things myself, you know, in, in doses. But I think at the end of the day, what people need to realize is that if you have a passion for something, you probably can turn that into something. You can turn it into speaking. You can turn it into a book if you have the desire to write a book. You can turn it into a small business. But investing in yourself is where you have to start. And you invested in yourself by taking the risk, by taking the time, by giving yourself the opportunity and the space and the courage to do that. And I mean, I just really applaud you for that because no matter what, it, it, it is a big step. And, I, and I'm sure, and you can tell me your opinion on this, but if you're 20 years at Procter & Gamble, you're making a pretty good salary. So even though you didn't have a desire for a bigger salary, that you really wanted to follow your passion, it's still hard to rip that Band-Aid off, isn't it? Yeah, it, it was. And um, 
in fact, the, the, the last thing that I needed was, uh, uh, you know, the courage to go do it, which we can definitely get there. I, I should probably tell you how I answered the other uh, criteria first, but yeah, the last thing that I needed was courage to just, yeah, to take that leap because yeah, you've, I mean, they call them golden handcuffs for a reason, right? They're, they're, they're tough to take off. Um, so did, uh, let me, let me answer the, the question that maybe was in between the lines there about the, the other, um, four criteria because it, 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 it's pretty short. Uh, I just, I did a test market basically. So, um, the way I answer those other questions, like, is this work I'm going to be truly passionate about? Can I excel at it? Is it going to make a difference in people's lives? You know, will it support my family? All that. Um, I basically didn't just quit my job and go start this new venture the next day. I mean, I would love to be able to tell you this romantic story about that. You know, that's what I did, but I was much more conservative than that. I basically did it on the side while I had my full-time corporate day job. And it took two and a half years to get that done to write a book, you know, one hour a day, five hours on the weekend, you know, find a, uh, an agent, find a publisher, get it published, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then wait to see if the phone would ring and if people would call me to want to do any speaking engagements. You know, that was a two and a half year process while I kept my day job. And that way I could test market and see, did, did the book sell well? Did, did the phone start to ring? And, and it did. And so, you know, and, and at, at one point I actually, uh, I, I used up all my vacation time um, going and doing these speaking engagements, which did not make my wife happy, actually. Um, so I went back to my 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 manager and I said, "Hey, uh, you know," he, and he knew exactly what I was doing. I said, "I, I would love to to move to a reduced work schedule so that I can have more time off to go do these things to see if this is going to work out for me because I haven't my te- I, I hadn't finished my test market that, spending those." 25 days or whatever wasn't enough to convince me. I wanted to see it continue. So I took a voluntary 10% pay cut and got 10% more days, or 10%, you know, whatever that is in a year, you know, 25 or 30 days extra off. And, um, and when that all got used up, that then I was convinced, okay, I see a long-term runway here for a real career. And so that's when I quit and not before. So I, I, I fully test marketed this idea in a very conservative manner before I felt like all five of those criteria got answered. Um, and, and I'll, I'll pause there before I tell you how I got over the, uh, <laughs> the, the, we got the courage to do it. Yeah. So I think what people would be really interested in, because you do have kids, you had obligations, you had a wife, how did you squeeze in the time to work on it? I mean, you were fully invested in giving that time each week. How did you keep going? Because doing that for two and a half years, I mean, it takes a lot of dedication. Yeah, well, the answer is because I, I, I bit it off in small enough chunks that it was manageable, right? It was literally one hour a day during the week and five hours across the course of an entire weekend. So two hours on a Saturday, three hours on a Sunday or something. But then during the week, just one hour, one hour. I mean, it was just, it was manageable. It wasn't like, I'm gonna, you know, four hours a day, I'm going to wake up really early and stay up late at night and not be able to see my kids and my wife. And no, it's an hour a day. You know, so I, 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 I made it a manageable, slow process than a rapid, oh, I got to get this done right away. And that seemed to work for me. Maybe the opposite plan would work for other people, but I didn't want to sacrifice, you know, my time with my, my family. So that, that was the plan I, I, I made. Yeah, that's amazing. So then the big C, the courage, <laughs> how, how did you, and, and, and then I always like to know, you know, how, how did, how was the company receptive to it when, when you gave the news that you were leaving? Yeah. 
So, uh, well, the courage first. Um, so you, you think with all of that, I would have it, but the, you know, I, I, I still didn't <laughs> still, uh, there was still something, like you said, there's just something scary about leaving, you know, a 20 year career in the, you know, in the middle of it. And, you know, too, I was too young for retirement, so I didn't officially meet the retirement guidelines and, you know, and, and all the financial safety that comes with having a, a real retirement, you know, from a company. So it, it was, it was a financially risky thing to do. So I did what, uh, you know, maybe a lot of people do when they're younger. And I was in my mid forties at the time. I, I, I called my dad, <laughs> you know, I need some advice, dad. Right. And, but, uh, at the time, you know, my dad lives 500 miles away from me and he's hard of hearing. So I can't actually call him on the phone really anymore. So, um, I had to write him a letter and I told him everything that I just told you. And, you know, the first part of this conversation. And I said, you know, what do you think I should do? And I thought he would write me back and say one of two things. He's either going to say, oh yeah, go for it, son. I believe in you. And he basically give me a dad pep talk, right? I, you know, go follow your dream. Or he was going to tell me, are you nuts? <laughs> like, <laughs> hey, son, keep your head down, you know, work hard, you know, finish, retire, and then go play with this, you know, crazy idea. Once you're safely retired and you can afford it and all that kind of stuff. I figured one of these two things he's going to tell me. And he didn't tell me either of those things. What he did was just, he told me a story about himself. He said, you know, when I was uh, five years old, I knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life. He said, I wanted to be a singer, you know, like Frank Sinatra or, you know, Tony Bennett or Sammy Davis Jr. I mean, he's, you know, and he's in his eighties. That's his genre, right? And uh, he said, and I knew that for sure the first day of the first grade, um, because the teacher asked all of us that day, if any of us had any special talent, you know, like out of magic tricks or dancing or something. And he said, I raised my hand and I said, I can sing. Despite the fact that he's never sung in front of anybody other than his mom in the kitchen, <laughs> right? Um, but he said, I can sing. So what, what do you think uh, a good, uh, encouraging teacher would say to young five-year-old Bobby Smith when he raises his hand and said, I can sing? You can absolutely do it. Right. Well, she did more than that. She invited him to do it right then. <laughs> she said, okay, all right, Bobby, well, stand up and sing us a song right now. And so he did. He stood up and he sang his favorite song, acapella, to the class right there on the mm. and he And he's telling me this in this letter, right? And he said, son, I nailed it. <laughs> I got all the words right, all the melody in key. It was perfect. I nailed it. And he said, and the students and the teacher stood up and they applauded me. He said, I Aww. got a standing ovation my first time to sing in front of an audience. And he said, unfortunately, that turned out to be the last time I ever sang in front of an audience. And he said, there's not a month that goes by in these last 75 years that I haven't thought about that. He said, for 75 years, I have wished that I had pursued that dream of being a singer. And I never did. And as if that wasn't enough, uh, Crystal, and it probably was, he, I, I, I kid you not, he closed the letter with these words. He said, I'd love to see you achieve your dream, but that doesn't mean in your lifetime, son. That means in mine. And oh my gosh, I just thought, tick, wow, oh, guy's 80, right? <laughs> and so, I mean, my dad just, he just laid down the gauntlet in front of me and challenged me to pick it up. Not off in the future at some distant time, but right now. And two days later, I walked into my boss's office and I resigned from my 20-year career. And I absolutely would not have done it that soon were it not for that letter. That's what I needed at that moment 
was the courage from that letter. And so, uh, and it's, it absolutely is one of the best decisions I've ever made. I, I, I literally have goosebumps hearing that story because it's so powerful. And, and I think it goes to your books and everything else that you do that how powerful a story is because he could have said, yes, do it or no, you're nuts. But he led with a personal story, which called you to action even more, which is just so amazing. And, and maybe that's a little bit where you got your storytelling abilities. Yeah, I'm sure that did influence it quite a bit. Yeah. But this is what people have to realize. And I think that story just coincides so perfectly with some research I was looking into recently and how to dive into what you're passionate about. And so that memory that he, you know, has resonated on for all of these years, that is one of the things that, that you know, kind of career guidance, uh, walking to the vision, life coach strategies talk about is what did you really love doing? And what did you think about, you know, when you're at elementary school before all of the practical rules start applying to you and the shoulds and what should you be doing and how should, you know, you go about life. Um, because then you're just leaning into what you love and what is interesting to you. And I think that really fades away as we get into our teens and certainly then as we get into high school and college and the real world. Um, so with that story, was there a time that you loved writing or was that something that you thought about as a child as well? Or did this kind of develop as something, a passion and interest later in life? Yeah, I, I kind of got lucky there. So so if you recall, um, the, the thing, that 10% that I was pursuing mm -hmm. to go do wasn't the writing. It was the speaking and training. I wanted to be a, a teacher, a teacher of of adults and executives as opposed to like an elementary school teacher or a college professor. I wanted to teach, you know, uh, leaders. Um, and the writing the book was just the necessary path to get there. But as I wrote that first book, I realized that I really love the writing process. And I didn't know that I would. I thought that's just going to be something I would do. And then, okay, now I'm done with that. And now I'm going to do the thing that I, I like. Um, but I really loved it. And, and then I looked back and I realized, you know, there were points at my life in school and in, in undergraduate and graduate school that I, you know, spent some time writing, but I mean, never professionally. So I, the dots kind of connected later, but I di that didn't have to happen. And so I, I admit, I, I kind of got lucky there uh, because honestly, most people in my line of work uh, fall into one of two camps. Either they love speaking and being on stage and absolutely hate writing. It's like writing books is like, you know, pulling teeth or something, or they love the process of researching and writing and are terrified to death to get on stage. But in this mm -hmm. line of work, you kind of have to do both. And I just got lucky that I, I love both of them. So I, you know, it, it, it all worked out. <laughs> That's amazing. Did you, did you figure out how to, to go about the process of writing a book on your own? Did you just establish your own process? Did you have somebody mentoring you on that? Um, how did, what did that look like for you? Yeah, I, I did all of those things. So I, I started by reading a couple of books about the, the writing, the business of writing. Um, you know, basically books to teach you, uh, you know, how the publishing process works, you know, how, how do you, how do you go about finding an agent? Do you need an agent? Um, 
you know, because obviously I knew nothing about that whole industry. And so I, I needed to learn a little bit first about how it all worked. How do you write a book proposal and what goes in it and which publisher should you get and should you self-publish instead? All that kind of stuff. Um, so that, that was the start. But then, yeah, I, I found people who had done it before to ask questions to and, and mentor me along the way. And, um, and the kind of things that I do now, you know, I have, uh, other people who, you know, now that I've, I'm five books into that career, you know, I, I sit down with other people and have lunch with them who want to write their first book. And I tell them what I've learned. I'm kind of, you know, paying it forward because somebody did, you know, with me. So yeah, I, I, I had to do all those things, but I, I started from nothing because, you know, if you've never written a book before, you have no idea how it works. That's amazing. And then you went on to write a book that it's in its 11th print. Is that correct? Oh yeah. The first one is probably in, it's probably in 13th or 14th printing now. And yeah, it's in seven or eight languages around the world, um, which, which was just, you know, amazed me. And I, 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 I didn't need it to be, you know, that successful. So I was, I was very pleased with that, but that, that again, that helped make the decision easy to leave and go do this. So before, um, I just want to dive into a little bit of the specifics because if it's of interest to people that are thinking about going in an alternative path or what does that look like, you didn't need the book to be, you know, a bestseller to pursue speaking engagements and, you know, corporate training or executive training. So how, how did you get booked early on, uh, or was the book a runaway success right away? And so it made it easier. Yeah. So, well, more the latter. Um, so the, my first speaking engagement came six months before the book came out, but it was only because the book was coming out. It literally, it, it just really surprised me. I literally got a phone call one day from a guy in uh, Los Angeles who said, uh, Hey, my name's Chris. I'm a, I run a speakers bureau. I've got a company that wants to hire you to give a speech at their annual company meeting. Are, are, are you, are you the Paul Smith? And I said, yeah, well, yeah, that's me. Um, how did they even know about me? So, well, they, they saw your, your book lead with a story. And I said, I'm still writing that book. It, it's not going to be published for another six months. How, how on earth would they even know about it? And he said, oh, well, it's already listed on Amazon. And so I, I, I look up on Amazon and sure enough, there it is. <laughs> it's for sale six months from now, pre, pre-order six months later. I had no idea. And so, yeah, my first speaking engagement came six months before the book came out, but only because of the book. So yeah, 70% of the people who hire me are people who've read one of my books. So that, that, that definitely, the books are the, my marketing vehicle. The, the, it's the way, the reason that people know about me and it's, it's my intellectual property. It, it, it's all of those things. So the book didn't have to, the first book didn't have to sell as well as it did, but it certainly helped. Um, and it's helped my, you know, the other, the other books do well also, I'm sure. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing that six month pre-order mm-hmm. that people are giving calls. Did yeah. you know it was even out there or did no, you? Um... No, I had, I had no idea. My publisher didn't even, t- didn't even tell me that. Now, <laughs> to be fair, my second speaking engagement was six months after the book came out. So the time between my first speaking engagement and my second speaking engagement was a year. <laughs> so, but that's what I expected. I expected, oh, the book will come out. It'll start to sell a little bit. You know, you know, s- somebody will like it. They'll want to hire me. Well, our, sp- or, you know, our next annual meeting isn't for four months, you know, so I expected it would be a number of months after the book came out before, you know, I would start getting speaking engagements. But the first one for some odd reason happened, you know, a year sooner than that. 
Wow. So how did you feel the first time you're, you're, you're not even completely done with your book. You're probably still tweaking some of your concepts and your theories and, and how you want to, um, you know, put those out there. How did you feel doing, um, taking the speech that early on? I mean, were you nervous? How did you feel? Oh, yeah, I was, I was terribly nervous, right? My first professional speaking engagement. Um, the, the concepts I was comfortable with because at, at, at that point we were really just editing. I mean, the, the book was essentially written. We we're just, you know, going through the editing process. So I knew my content well, but I'd never, you know, been paid to give a speech before. And yeah, in fact, the, the most memorable thing to me about that <laughs> first speech was that uh, I forgot to pack my razor. You know, in my my haste and nervousness of packing a bag, I just I forgot my razor. So I get there, and so you know, they've the hotel's always got a you know a little disposable razor that they'll give you. And so I went and got one, and but they're just they're cheap, and I shaved with it, and I yeah. literally I I cut myself in three or four places on my neck uh, shaving that morning. And my speech was the, I was the first guy up, you know, at eight o'clock in the morning, and it's six thirty, and I got three or four cuts on my neck, and I'm literally bleeding. Like that onto my shirt, you know, and I, I'm looking at myself in the mirror with a bloody neck, and you know, thinking, "Great, my first professional speaking engagement. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to look like a, you know, a, a traffic accident just happened, and uh, you know, n- nobody's ever going to hire me again." And <laughs> it was just I, I had this disaster scenario playing out in my head, but uh, for, you know, miraculously, it all uh, all kind of dried up before I walked on stage. So. Uh, it, it was fine. So after all these years, do you still have any nerves about speaking or do you feel pretty pretty at ease now? You know, I, I think if you don't get a little bit nervous before you walk out on stage, there's something probably wrong with you. <laughs> um, but uh, I think if you're still nervous, uh, you know, five minutes in, there's probably something wrong with you too. Uh, or not something yeah. wrong with you. Just you, you're not comfortable in this line of work yet. So uh, yeah, if I'm about to walk on stage with a thousand people, yeah, you feel the butterflies in the stomach. But once you're into your first story, all that kind of fades to the background and it just becomes a conversation that you're having with people, or at least that's the way it it has worked for me for years now. Yeah. It's the same for me. I think people are often surprised to know that, um, as, as, as live out loud as I am, um, I'm very verbose. I talk to anybody. I don't shy away from opportunities, but public speaking, it's one of those things that you got to do it pretty regularly or it is nerve wracking. I mean, I still get nervous now, but when I don't do any public speaking for a long time, um, I get really nervous. In fact, I remember the first time and it wasn't even public speaking. I did a, I was doing a moot court in law school. So it's, it's, it's like an appellate system where you just sit in front of five judges, but I was in the actual fifth circuit in new Orleans, Mm. which, um, you know, is beautiful. It's a storied place. And we were getting up there and I got so nervous that I started blacking out and I had to just remind myself to deep breath. But my vision was going in and out and I was thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to stand up here and I'm going to pass out. But I tell that, I tell my, I have three sons that are nine and under. um, And I talk to them about that um, when I try to encourage them, you know, to take courageous leaps and that even I have gotten so nervous and people are really surprised to hear that because I'm not a wallflower. Um, But so it's always interesting to, to me to hear, you know, people that do it very, very regularly. Do you still experience nervousness? Um, Because I think that sometimes is what holds people back who maybe want to do what you're doing, Paul. 
um, and and think that that is really the in kind of impact and legacy that they want to leave. But they have this fear of public speaking. Um, and and what I've found in talking to people is that most people still have a little bit of nervousness. Uh, if you're speaking in front of 50 people, maybe it's not so much, but like you said, a thousand people. I mean, even people with a lot of experience still get nervous. So um, yeah, I think, it, I think it's healthy. I think that just that little amount, it, it, it keeps you on your toes. Um, you know, uh, if it's so much that it's debilitating, that's obviously not healthy either though. Yeah. And it shows you care. I think, I think that means you want to do well and you yeah, want to exactly. bring what they've uh, brought you over and paid you for. Um, so I think it's a positive really. Um, I wanted to turn a little bit to your interviews and, and how the idea for interviewing CEOs um, about effective story and effective leadership came about. Where did you come up with this idea? And then how did you go about capturing the attention of so many CEOs uh, and getting them to speak with you? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So the, well, the topic came from, so remember my goal was to be a speaker and trainer I figured I needed to write a book. So then you got to figure, well, what's my book going to be about? What do I want to spend my time speaking and training and teaching people about? And I'd thought about the training classes that I had taught for the last 15 or 20 years. And I thought the thing that made them as effective as they were was were the stories that I was telling. And so I thought, well, I, I should learn more about and teach people about that. That's something that I have learned something about. And that I'm interested enough in to, you know, pursue the rest of my career focusing on that area. So that's why I chose the topic. Now, how to get all these, you know, executives to spend time with me on the phone? um, I'm I'm convinced there's there's one reason why I was as effective. It was as effective as it was. Uh, And I'll just demonstrate that to you right now. So I want you to imagine that you and I don't know each other. We've just met, so it's not going to be hard for you to imagine that. You know, an hour ago, (laughs) what it was like. Um, and I called you or sent you an email and said, uh, Hey, Crystal, my name is Paul Smith. I know you don't know me, but I've always wanted to be an author. I've always wanted to write a book. And so I'm, I'm, I'm working on trying to write a book. I hope it gets published someday, but I need to interview, you know, executives at some companies. Would you mind spending an hour or two on the phone with me? Now, how would you honestly respond to that if you got that from some stranger you'd never heard of before? I would probably think I'm really busy and a lot of people want my time and why would I give it to you? Exactly. Now, different scenario. Uh, Same scenario, different facts. Um, Hey, Crystal, my name is Paul Smith. I know you don't know me, but I'm under contract with the American Management Association to write a book on leadership. Uh, It's going to be published in the fall. I'm looking for strong leaders at successful companies to feature in the book. Would you have an hour or two to spend on the phone with me? Now, now, what would you say? Well, that sounds like an honor. And I think I would love to give feedback to help this cause of action. Exactly. Now, the difference, the only difference between those is, in one case, you don't even know if the book I'm writing is going to get published. And most books don't get published. <laughs> so it's probably going to be a waste of your time. But in the second case, oh, this book is going to be written. It's going to be published. It has a publication date already. I can either be in the book or not. Right. So... And that's what I did. I, you know, I, I waited until I got the publishing contract to start doing the interviews. And I had a 93% success rate getting executives whom I didn't even know to interview with me. 
And I'm convinced that it would have been a much lower success rate if I didn't have that already. So that, that, that seems to work. Now, also, the second uh, secret is the last question I asked everybody on, on these interviews was, now that you know what I'm looking for, who do you suggest I talk to next? And they almost all have, oh, yeah, you got to talk to my cousin, Bob. He's got lots of great stories. Or, oh, yeah, my, my wife, is you, you got to talk to her. She, she's great at this kind of stuff. Um, and so not only did I get a recommendation to somebody else who would know something about this, but I had a personal connection to them now, and they could introduce me, and that made it easier. So those two uh, tactics seem to work very well. Wow. I think that's amazing. That's amazing. So I think that's really applicable for people in whatever your ask is, whatever the need you have is. Uh, if you know, for me, asking people to be on the podcast that I think are really interesting and have a great story and and the approach that you take. If you want to get in the door to interview somebody for a news article, if you want to get in the door to talk to somebody about their hiring needs, um, the way that you approach that, and I'm sure that's exactly what your books help um, teach people is the words you use, the language you use, and the approach you use can be the difference maker in sales and leadership and everything. Yeah. Like just imagine the situation you and I are in right now. You contacted me and asked me to be on your podcast. If instead of saying, Hey, I've, I've got this podcast, get clear, you know, I'd love for you to be on it. If you'd said, Hey, I'm thinking about starting a podcast. Don't know if it's going to work or not, but um, you know, could you interview with me? And then maybe if I get enough together and I kind of get my act together and I figure out how to make it all happen, maybe, you know, next year we'll start to, you know, it's just, it's much less certain that it's going to happen and it would probably have been less uh, appealing, right? So just knowing that people are not going to waste their time with you, that it, the, the project is going to happen is very reassuring to people. Yeah. So after talking to all those uh, CEOs, and I know this may not, this wasn't really the focus of what your conversations were, but did you did you see any trends in the type of traits that led to success or anything, commonalities about the CEOs that you spoke with that are worth sharing? Well, the, I mean, the thing that I was looking for was storytelling, right? So, uh, you know, I wasn't conducting a survey to find out what is it that made you successful. You know, I was specifically asking about their use of storytelling in business. Um, so, uh, it, what I will tell you is, though, that some of the people who were the best storytellers were not the people I expected them to be. <laughs> um, and I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, so, like Sarah Matthew. Uh, was the CEO of Dun and Bradstreet, uh, became the chairman, and she's since retired. But um, before that, she was the chief financial officer of Dun and Bradstreet, and before that, she spent her entire career in finance and accounting. Not the kind of person that you would a background you would expect to be a great storyteller, um, you know. Uh, but she was, and, um, and another one, a similar uh, John Bryant. Uh, was the CEO of Kellogg's, the breakfast cereal maker. So he had a similar background to Sarah's. He, before that, he was the chief financial officer, and before that, he spent his entire career in, in finance. Um, you know, you think of the people that are going to be great storytellers are the folks that you know maybe spent their careers in sales or marketing or something or communications, and and there are great storytellers in in those areas. Um, so. You know, what I would tell you is my, my guess is, is that their storytelling ability 
is part of what helped those two people become the CEO and not stop at the CFO office. Um, I'm I'm sure they had other great leadership capabilities as well. And they're both very, very, very bright people. Um, But I got to think that that influenced it uh, in some way. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of the things that I talk to people about when you're seeking a raise, a new position, you want to level up your career or go for a job at another company that maybe is a real stretch for you. How do you convey your abilities, your capabilities, what you've achieved? And the best way to do that is through storytelling. And I think that when you can do that effectively, then you can, you know, make bigger jumps in whatever you're looking for. Uh, And certainly um, in finance, you know, if you're a publicly traded company, you do have to kind of tell some stories, although, you know, true stories. <laughs> Sometimes stories have the connotation of being uh, fictitious, uh, but you do have to tell stories when you're doing your investor presentations. Right. Uh, so the investor relation guys always, uh, the ones that I've worked with and talked to, they always seem to have amazing um, charisma and storytelling ability. Um, but yeah, I mean... Interesting that you say that because that was Sarah's job before. At one point in her career, she was in charge of investor relations for Procter & Gamble. Um, which is how we got connected, but. Yeah. And then generally they have to be speaking to the investor uh, investment pool, uh, you know, quarterly at a minimum, but often more regularly on a one-on-one basis uh, and talking about the company and talking about what all they're doing. Um, so that that makes sense to me. Um, but I think this is really applicable, everybody, uh, to being a good storyteller, no matter where you are in life or what your job is, You may not think that applies to you, but it really and truly does. I mean, if you're just going in for your annual review with your boss, having your bullet points, that doesn't convey the story. That's just words on a page. You need to bring them to life and being able to tell a story is really how you can do that. So I think what you took and what you noticed and then what you went out and sought from the CEOs of CEOs that you were speaking to, I mean, is amazing. And I, I, I am, am sure that's why your books have done so well and while uh, people continue to book you over and over and over and over again, uh, because this can be so meaningful. But I just like everybody to highlight that this is not just for the top tier. This is not just for executives or people in leadership. This goes all the way down. If you are a secretary, if you are working at the front desk and you're wanting to make a change, being able to put your experience and your abilities into a story is going to help you. So I highly recommend uh, checking out these books. Um, I think there's a lot of value there. The last thing I kind of wanted to ask you, uh, because I noted that this has been 10 years, 10 years since you took the leap of faith. So what have you learned in the 10 years? What have you learned about kind of being an entrepreneur, uh, I mean, you might think of yourself as an author and a speaker, but you know, you you have your own business. So to me, you're an entrepreneur. Um, what have you learned? What have you learned about your time management, about working um, in your own kind of way? Uh, and and what would you tell yourself looking back to day one now? Yeah, I, I think the most important lesson I learned was to not think of the different parts of my business separately. So for example, I'm, I'm both an author and a speaker, right? So I write books, 
The books earn me royalties. I give speeches. The speeches earn me speaking fees. And I was thinking when I started out, I was thinking about those as two different businesses. And if you're going to run a business, you want it to be successful, it needs to make a profit, right? So my books need to make a profit for me and my speaking engagements need to make a profit for me. And that led me to making, I think, some bad decisions, uh, thinking about them separately. I should have thought about them combined. For example, you know, there would be people, you know, uh, you know, invite me to be a guest on one of their, on their radio show or something or a podcast like this one. And they would say, Hey, uh, can you give me a few copies of your book to give away to my listeners? Just, that's just something that we do to drum up interest in the show or something. And, you know, I would, there were times where I would say, you know, or they would ask for too much and I would say, no, that just, that doesn't make financial sense to me. You know, I'm going to be on your show. There's, you know, it's a new show. There's going to be a few hundred people listening to it. You know, I might, it might result in two or three people buying a copy of my book. I make a dollar and 50 cent profit on each book. So I'm, you know, I'm going to be on your show and I'm going to make $4 and 50 cents off this. And you want me to give you $30 worth of books. I got, you know, it just doesn't make sense. Um, and then I eventually I just realized, well, that that's, that's silly, right? Um, you know, the reason people, the, the reason people hire me is because they've read one of my books, right? So, um, you know, the, the books are really, you know, I should probably just give them away for free instead of making people buy them because that's how people find out about me. So that was just really narrow, shallow thinking, you know, when I first started. So I had to get past that pretty quickly and think of my books um, not as a profit center, but as an expensive business card. And, you know, then I made better decisions. That's fascinating. Well, and now that it's making me think back of some of the things that I've seen and been through. And I remember this really fascinating corporate trainer that we had come in from Asheville, North Carolina at one of the companies uh, I was working for. And that was part of it. I'm, I'm sure it was baked into the cost of hiring him, hiring him for this like three-day leadership training. But we all got books. Um, and you know, then it sat on my desk and I emailed him several times thereafter. And I told people about him because it was sitting on my desk. Uh, and I really thought him, he, you know, the, everything that he brought, his aura, what he told us was so fascinating. Uh, and every time I looked at this book, I thought, I, I got to tell somebody else about that guy. I really like that guy. I learned this from that guy. Um, so it's interesting. And that... <laughs> That is a great way to think of it. A really expensive business card. It took your time. It took your energy. And it actually does cost money. Um, but that, that's great advice uh, for people. Um, and so do you have any regrets in the last 10 years? Mm. No, I don't. And But I could have easily had regrets. Like if I had waited until I could retire from Procter & Gamble, um, you, you can retire from Procter and Gamble at the age of 55, take an early retirement package. I'm 55 years old now. Okay. So for the last 10 years, I would have still been doing my old job and I would, it would be now when I would finally leave to go start this amazing career that I've been enjoying for the last 10 years. So, um, no, I don't have any regrets. And my dad's letter is, is why <laughs> I don't have any regrets. And I've gotten to do this for the last 10 years. And I'm so glad that I did. I, I, yeah, I can't imagine, um, having made it the opposite choice. That's amazing, Paul. I love it. I think it's it's fascinating. Like I said, people that haven't been in corporate America don't always know, and you referred to the the golden hand, handcuffs early on. I, I call them silver handcuffs mm. because um, for me, it wasn't... I made a, a very, very solid six figures, huge bonuses, um, but it wasn't 
so, 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 so much that to me, it was golden handcuffs quite yet. But in my mind, that's what I kept thinking is like, I'm going to be to the golden handcuff situation in the next few years if I, and it just is going to be harder and harder and harder to leave. Um, But I just think it's really important for people to see, uh, feel and touch and, 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 get the whole picture of what it looks like to leave corporate America uh, because it can be very challenging. I know a lot of people out there have dreams and goals and aspirations. They also want to make an impact and a difference and influence people like you are doing. And so to see that, to hear the story, to know that there are other people that look like me that had the same kind of job as me that you know supported their family just like me and they were able to do it, it's inspiring. It gives people the belief that it can be done. And now, um, what I heard you say, in, in maybe not so succinct a way, but you know, you don't have any regrets about doing it then. You know, you have that 10 years of work and experience and enjoying your life and your life's mission. Um, so people, don't delay if you have the thought, if you have an idea, if you have a passion and a purpose, you know, just go for it because the worst that can happen, like Paul said, the worst that can happen, you give yourself a year or two and you go get a new job. You know, it is what it is. It's not a big deal. So thank you so much uh, for being here, Paul. Is there anything else that you would want to leave listeners with? Um, otherwise, we will tell everybody in the show notes where they can find you. No, it's just, uh, yeah, my, if folks are interested, my website's probably the best way to get in touch with me. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't want to sound too cliche, but, you know, following your dream doesn't happen uh, by accident. You know, you, it, you've got to be intentional about it. And, um, you know, I don't know if, if my, the plan I put together worked for me, it might work for you, you might need a different plan, but having a plan uh, is, is more likely to make it happen than just waiting for some serendipity to drop in your lap. Exactly. Nothing happens by accident. You got to make it happen. You got to work at it. Everybody that you look around and see that's successful or doing something interesting or exciting, believe me, they all worked at it. Paul just told us he spent two and a half years writing his book and working on it uh, before he made that leap. So what we see on social media is just you know the va- very shallow view of what is going on behind the scenes. So it is possible, it is doable, and you can do what you want when you rip that Band-Aid off. Thank you so much, Paul, uh, for everyone. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope this brought you as much value as it brought me. And we can't wait for you to hear this and give us your feedback and let us know what questions you have and what you wanna hear on the show next. All right, till next time, remember that you are made for more, so start living like it today. Thanks for listening in. If you loved what you heard, it would mean so much to me if you shared it with your friends. Tag us on social media so we can give you a big shout out. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want more, head on over to the website where you can learn all about what we do to serve and support our entire community. Until next time, keep dreaming big and getting clear. You are made for more, so start living like it today.